morning, friends. It is good to be with you again and continuing our study through the last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark where we're taking a closer look at the theology, the, the things of God we can learn uh, from those three chapters. And of course, thinking about God is a grand undertaking. It's the grandest undertaking of uh, human existence. There's nothing more grand. Um, and so thinking deeply about God requires us some effort, some time, which we've tried to do here in the past few months as we've studied Mark 14, 15, and 16 from a theological perspective. Uh, I, as, as I've done before, I want to remind you of A.W. Tozer's important quote. Um, he said this in The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So, uh, if Tozer's right, what do your thoughts of God reveal about you? If Tozer's correct, and what you think about when you think of God is the most important thing about you, what does that say? I think this is an important thing to think about. If, if we're going to become more substantial Christians, if we're going to be actually more acquainted with our Creator, we need to spend time thinking about studying the person of God, which has been the goal of the last few months in this uh, sermon series. The three chapters of Mark under consideration um, help us think about God in a meaningful way. Certainly we can read through them as we have done probably many times as Christians and understand the story. We know the plot, we, we know the, the last chapter, we know how it turns out. But if we, we dig underneath the surface a bit and, and look through the lens of Mark 14, 15, and 16, intentionally pursuing a deeper understanding of God, I think we get exposed to the essence of the nature of God, which cannot help but impact your heart. And God, of course, inspired all the authors of scriptures, and he intentionally uses the, the human authors to to plant ideas about himself within the text so that it'll be an encouragement to our soul as we read and study and discover those things. One way to think about Mark 14, 15, and 16 in our pursuit of God is to think of them as a grand house, if you will, with, with fine finishes, with uh, beautiful uh, craftsmanship, and then, and then think about all the things that we learn of in Mark 14, 15, and 16 represented within that house. Uh, the, the, the things of Jesus' passion, the things of his love for his disciples, the, the, the trial and, and, and execution, death and burial and resurrection of Christ as all one beautifully designed custom home. And we see this by looking at, at Mark 14, 15, and 16 and it does something to the soul as you consider these things. It moves the soul, and it's intended to move the soul um, for a reason. We, we see that the second person of the Godhead in, in these three chapters, as he infinitely condescended into our world, we see his physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. We see his agony. We see his humiliation, betrayal, his loneliness, all the things that Mark 14 through 16 have revealed to us, and then we think that we're done with the story, right? Except when you dig a half an inch 
into the surface of those things. And all of a sudden, the person of God is, is revealed to us and exposes a lot of stuff about us and a lot of stuff about God. And I've been trying to help you see these things from the chapter. I, I want us this morning to, to do our best to get past the story, not as if it's meaningless, but as if there's something else there that God would have us understand about himself. The reasons behind, the motives behind, all the things we've read about in, in those three chapters, Mark 14, 15, and 16. That's what I want to uncover for you today. And thinking of this grand house, Mark 14, 15, and 16, it has a basement. So I want to ask you to join me as I walk into the basement and show you the foundation, the, the strong foundation for what lies ahead, above us, Mark 14, 15, and 16, the things we read. I want to show you the beams that support the story. And it, it reminds me of my grandparents' house in Woodburn, Oregon. When I was a child, we would come back from Ecuador where my parents were missionaries once every four years, and we'd visit them, and I was always intrigued with the basement. The upstairs was, was nice as, as it was, but the downstairs is what attracted my attention. I really like to go down there and watch the, this whole wall, look at all my grandpa's tools. And then my grandma had a, uh, a canning cellar where she stored all the peaches and all the stuff that she did upstairs as you bring it down. And all this downstairs was intriguing to me. And I noticed when I was a kid uh, the amazing structure of that basement. These huge, thick beams I don't think you can buy anymore that supported the structure of the entire house. Uh, three or four of these things that ran the length from one side of the foundation to the other. And I was thinking of that as I was studying for this sermon, thinking this is exactly what, how I want you to think about Mark 14, 15, and 16. We see it upstairs, we see the nice living room, we see the, the nice entryway, the dining room, and these things that you know, are comfortable and enjoyable to the eye. But when you, it's not till you get downstairs and look at the structure that you can appreciate the upstairs, as we should. And so that's what I want you to do. I want you to join me as I take you into the basement of Mark 14, 15, and 16 and show you what God has intended for us to see. Help to, see you, to show you this morning that Christ took on all his humiliation, all of his suffering, all his pain, everything we read of for a reason. Not a hope, but a, a certain objective. A certain objective. And that objective was read for you this morning way back from an ancient prophet named Isaiah who wrote of Christ in his passion. We, re we heard this read this morning from Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, as we consider a theology of the cross from Mark 14, 15, and 16, I want to go backward into time and eternity, or as you will, into the basement of this house, to give you a glimpse of the heart of God for his people and for his own glory. As he purposed all of this to accomplish our redemption. In the basement of this grand house, we see in Isaiah 53, 11, two things. 
And I want you to see these things so that as I talk about the things we're gonna see in the basement, it'll make sense to you. The first thing I want you to see uh, from Isaiah 53:11 is what Isaiah wrote about the anguish of Christ's soul. He said, out of the anguish of his soul. What was Isaiah talking about? This phrase refers to all of Jesus' sufferings from Mark 14, 15, and 16. From his condescension to this earth, to spiritual and mental anguish, to the way of his death and his burial, all of that was the anguish of his soul. It's his complete humiliation, like no one has ever been humiliated before or since. The Hebrew word, in fact, used for anguish refers to the physical pain attending the woman giving birth. That's the word used, anguish. So this is very meaningful, the, the, the point of the word. It, it leads to the second thing I want you to notice from this basement view, from this theological viewpoint of Mark 14, 15, and 16. And that is this, contained in the second half of verse 11 of Isaiah 53. The certainty of the result. So we have the anguish of the soul leading to the certainty of the result. Let me read the verse for you again from Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Not he may see, not he hopes to see, but he shall see. I remember the anguish of Sherry when she was giving birth to our three kids. The first time that this happened, it was enough for me to say, we are no longer doing this. We will never do this again after the birth of our first son. Uh, partly because my life was in danger in that birthing room. Um, you, some of you husbands know what I mean. Um, she had my wallet literally in her mouth. She was doing this with my wallet with one hand and the other hand was on my throat. And I'm like, you know, have mercy, Lord Jesus. But the part of the meaning of the Hebrew sentence, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, is the same joy that made us forget about the anguish of the birth of our first son. He will see and be satisfied. It's, it's an amazing miracle, isn't it? If you've, been, if you've had a child or if you've been in the room, the, the immediate transition of what's going on there from anguish to overflowing joy. This is exactly what God wants us to see concerning his work on Calvary for us. So anguish is quickly replaced by overflowing joy, not just in birthing women, but in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Out of the anguish of his soul, he would see the intended results and be satisfied. The fruit of his eternal plan of redemption was certain. <laughs> so Jesus didn't condescend from heaven to earth, from eternal creator to a poor but mistreated creature for a possibility. His plan of redemption wasn't designed to give humans a chance to be saved and maybe make it to heaven. No. Friends, Jesus did all that he did knowing that it would accomplish with 100% certainty that his people would be saved. This is important to know. 
Jesus, in fact, cemented this reality into the minds of his readers through the apostle John's pen in John 16, 21, when he said that a woman is, when a, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow and pain, but when she delivers the baby, she forgets her anguish and is overcome with joy. She's satisfied. She goes, that's exactly what's going to happen after my death. Jesus said this in John 16. So he used this illustration as a perfect picture of what God has done in the plan of redemption, in the basement of this beautiful home. This is what God has done. And when he's finished with the work of creation, what did he say in Genesis 3 or at Genesis 2? It is good, right? Satisfied. What do you think he's going to say on that great day when we all are in his presence? All of the redeemed are saved to sin no more. How's it going to go? It is good. <laughs> the anguish of his soul will result in the actual redemption of his people. Oh, what a blessing. What a thought. So what is the first thing that we learn from walking down into the basement of this great house of God's plan of redemption? It is this. It's that all of God's plans of humiliation and suffering and death of Jesus definitely results in his complete satisfaction and joy. And it is pictured, all of it is pictured in the Old Testament. So it's not new territory when we get to the New Testament. It's familiar to everybody who's familiar with the Old Testament. It's part of the wonder of this basement of the grand house that I'm showing you. And I'm calling it beam number one, the Old Testament type. If you're taking notes, it's there. It says beam number one, the Old Testament type. It's a picture of the bloodied Christ is what I want you to see. It's the picture of shedding of Christ's blood in the Old Testament. Now, you're saying, what does this have to do with Mark 14, 15, and 16? Let me be as simple and clear as possible. Everything. <laughs> it means everything. This is what the point of John 14, 15, and 16 is, is for you and me to see a grand and dying Savior. As distasteful as the bloody, bloodiness of the Old Testament sacrificial can be, and maybe is to you, there is an important point to it. It was intended to picture the work of Christ on Calvary in the years to come. That was the whole thing going on back in the Old Testament. A, a, a forgiveness of sin of sorts took place in the Old Testament, but it pointed to the perfect forgiveness provided by Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, when we get to the New Testament. Mark 14, 15, and 16, for example. So God provided a way for sins to be forgiven in the Old Testament, right? as temporary as it was, and that way pointed to Jesus' sacrifice. It was the bloody sacrifice of innocent animals, and what did the bloody sacrifice in the Old Testament accomplish? Follow me. First, it delivered from danger. Do you remember where the sacrificial system became a definite reality, right? It was in the wilderness. It happened before that. It happened in the Garden of Eden, in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, when God provided skins of animals to Adam and Eve to cover their naked bodies. That was the first sacrifice that took place. And that was, that was just the beginning of this. But it came into definite reality and observable things in the wilderness wanderings when Moses received the law and the first covenant. 
But what we see here is that when it first took place in Acts, I mean in, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, it delivered from danger. The bloody sacrifice delivered from danger. Let me read it for you. Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There is the first sign of a deliverance from danger. God's judgment was coming, and if they followed the commands of God through Moses, they would sacrifice an innocent animal and put the blood on the doorpost, and the danger of God's judgment would pass by, right? That's the story of the Passover. That's what happened. That's what got them out of Egypt. That's the first time we read of this sacrificial system providing a way of escape from danger. All right, next we see in Leviticus chapter 4, Verse 20, it was intended not only to deliver from danger, but to make atonement, to make atonement. Leviticus chapter four, verse 20 says, thus shall he do with the bull, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. What is atonement? It means payment for sin. The way that their sin was covered, atoned for, was through the death of a bull, in this case, innocent blood being spilled. Now I want you, I'm not just repeating this to give you no lesson in the Old Testament. I'll, I'm explaining to you how the type is related to the anti-type, and I'll get there in a second. Thirdly, this, this Old Testament sacrificial system was intended to purify the people, not only deliver from danger, not only to make atonement, but to purify people, to purify God's people. Listen to this from Leviticus 14, 6, and 7. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. So if you had leprosy, you went to the priest, they perform this rite and they sprinkled blood on you to cleanse you, to purify you, to cleanse you of your, your leprosy. So <laughs> this is what took place. This is how they were cleansed, blood. Fourth, the last thing we see that the Old Testament type of Christ, which is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament was to confirm the covenant of God with his people. In Exodus chapter 24, verse eight, we read this. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So God established a covenant with his people and he ratified it with blood. So the blood of the Old Testament covenant, the, the, the type of Christ's work on Calvary was meant to deliver from danger, to make atonement, to purify people, the God's people, and to confirm the covenant, all right? In the same way that the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices accomplished their four purposes, so the blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes its four purposes that are parallel. And I'm gonna go through those quickly now, and I'm calling it beam number two. In your notes, you'll see it. This is the fulfillment of, or the anti-type of the Old Testament pictures, the Old Testament types. Okay, are you with me? Good, thank you. 
The first is this. Jesus' blood, just like the blood of the Old Testament picture, Jesus' blood delivers from danger. What danger might that be, you might ask? Well, listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is somehow delivering us from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come speaking of? What was Paul referring to? It's God's wrath against unrepentant sinners. Jesus rescues us from that danger of the wrath to come. So, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we begin to understand a little bit about the problems of unrepentance. And you think, well, it's, I, I just get bored in church. I don't, I don't want to be there. Well, unrepentance goes way beyond boredom, all right? Or uh, an interest in uh, hunting or skiing or doing something else on Sunday morning or any other day of the week that's related to your own agenda. Yes, this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, helps us understand the problems with unrepentance. First of all, God's wrath makes most of us cringe, even if we're saved, doesn't it? Considering the wrath of God is no shallow matter, even for us who have been delivered from it. But it also has a significant biblical meaning as it relates to the wrath of God towards those who reject him. When, if they say, no thank you to God, I'm not interested in your son or anything he has done, I'd rather live my own life and deal with the consequences later, don't know what they're dealing with. The verse adds a shocking and fearful addition to the word wrath. Wrath to come. It's not just talking about future wrath or a spanking you might get in the future. It's speaking of the eternal wrath that keeps coming. It just keeps coming. That's the meaning of the word. That's the tense that's used. It's wrath that just keeps on coming. It's the idea of perpetual wrath. It's the never going to end kind of wrath. It will always continue kind of wrath is what Paul meant, is what the words he used mean. So we sing the verse, the the song that is meaningful to us. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Well, how about the unrepentant? How many years after 10,000 will they have to continue to experience the wrath to come? It just keeps on coming. So from this danger, and I hope hope I've communicated clearly the danger, from this danger, Jesus has delivered us. (laughs) Amen indeed. He has delivered us from this danger by his suffering and death on Calvary. Romans 5, 9, since therefore, Paul writes, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him 
by the wrath, or saved by him from the wrath of God. The blood of Jesus delivers us from this danger. Jesus' blood was the ransom price required for our sin. It has delivered us from danger in four ways. These four ways are not listed in your notes. If you want to record them, you'll have to do some writing. But the blood of Christ has delivered us from danger in four ways. First, freely. It's delivered us freely from danger. We were once lost in what Paul called the domain of darkness. Have you ever been in such a place that's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face? This is the domain of darkness that Paul was talking to in a spiritual sense. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. That's how dark. We were all lost there. We were, Paul says in another place, in a world without hope and no relationship with God. We sing, I once was lost. We read in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no way to get out of this eternal mess that we were in. We were born there, incapable of getting out. You remember the ad that some of you laughed at? I've fallen and I can't get up. You remember that ad? And they have a picture of an older person on the ground with this necklace on that had a little plastic thing. You push the button and she, and she says, I've fallen and I can't get up. That's all of us. We've all fallen and cannot get up. It's impossible for us to get up. We've fallen into sin. The only hope is to push the button of Christ. That's it. And wait for his delivery from danger. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 2 after Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin with no hope at all in this world that we live in. And he says in verse 4, but God. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. What a truth. He's delivered us from danger. It, it costs him everything, but it's freely given to us. Next we see by the blood of Jesus, God delivers us completely, not just freely, but completely. It's a full and comprehensive deliverance. Listen, what it means is that it wasn't like the Old Testament sacrifices that were just temporary. Those, those lasted until you sinned again. Then you had to bring another animal. Um, see, Jesus' blood provides a complete and comprehensive, and now listen to this word, permanent solution. A permanent deliverance from danger. Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, Jesus became the source, isn't this a great word, of eternal salvation. Not temporary. Eternal. And so understanding complete deliverance is important, Christian. It's not just free, it's complete. Not only does the blood of Jesus deliver us from the wrath of God eternally, but we also must see that it delivers us from the wrath of God comprehensively 
In other words, the blood of Jesus doesn't just deal with most of our sins or our biggest sins. No, it deals comprehensively with all of our sins. And this is good news because the slightest sin condemns forever. But the blood of Jesus deals with it comprehensively, completely. We don't have to worry about waking up after death someday in purgatory with some kind of payment remaining on our due list. No. There are no sins left to cover the blood of Christ comprehensively covers them all. Romans 8.1 is the favorite verse of many of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, by the blood of Jesus, God delivers us specifically. Now, I need you to walk with me slowly down the next few steps into this basement as you examine this particular thought with me, this part of this beam. If the anguish of Jesus' soul was indeed certain, to see that joyful result of his suffering that we read of in Isaiah 53, then it must mean that specific people are in view. If Jesus' blood only gave us the possibility of being saved, then it's possible that none would be saved. And that is impossible because it says he would see and be satisfied. So even from the logical side of things, we can see that there must be some specific people in view. Right? Thankfully, though, this isn't just a logical step that we take, it's supported all over scripture. This is the doctrine of election, one of the great five doctrines of grace, and I don't have the time this morning to fully defend this amazing and beautiful doctrine, uh, but consider the following verses, and by the way, there are thousands if you're interested. Here's just a few, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. <laughs> they were appointed. When do you think this appointment took place? Ephesians 1.4 tells us when it took place. Before the foundation of the world, Christ chose you. There are specific people in view. This is a wonderful doctrine, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. When were they given? Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says that before time began and eternity passed, God the Father wanted to give God the Son a love gift, and guess what he gave them? People. You and me. He gave John 17, 1 and 2, Jesus speaks of this again to his father before he begins gathering his people into the fold. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the father gives a love gift of a group of people that contains everyone to, well, that will be in heaven one day, he gives it as a gift to his son to demonstrate his divine love 
for the second person of the Godhead. And in time, Jesus went to Calvary to pay the sins of those people. Ephesians 1.4, which I just read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Fourth, by the blood of Jesus, God delivers us from danger wonderfully. All right, not just freely, not just comprehensively, uh, not just specifically, but wonderfully. And this kind of wraps up all of them, if I can. The blood of Jesus is so wonderful to us that we sing about it often, like this morning. Don't know if any of you were grossed out in our song service, but you might have had reason to. And people outside of these walls would say, what are those people singing? Listen to the words you sang. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. Flow of what? Blood that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And on and on you sang, singing about blood. And then, uh, in case you didn't get it, we sang another song together. There is a fountain filled with blood. Does that get any grosser? A fountain of blood? And guess where they got the blood? It's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. This, there's something wrong with us. We're singing about blood. And plunging in it. And rolling around in it. Friends, there was something wrong with us until this became beautiful. <laughs> the sacrifice, sacrificial and bloody sacrifice of Jesus, that bloody death, is the content of our worship, isn't it? The, the content of our praise, our singing, our prayers. Our deliverance from the wrath of God was planned by God, promised by God, executed by God. And instead of letting us die in our sins and spending eternity without him, separate from our loving Savior, he designed a way to comprehensively deal with our sin problem. Now, in case you're getting lost in my outline, I'm going to point B. Jesus' blood makes atonement. Jesus' blood delivers from danger, right? Remember, we're, we're looking at the antitype or the place to which these Old Testament pictures are pointing. The first one is it, it, it delivers us from danger, like it did in the Old Testament. Jesus' blood delivers from danger permanently. Now we see Jesus' blood makes atonement. And this is pictured back in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20 that I read for you and all over the Old Testament sacrificial system. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we see the antitype. It says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how are we reconciled? By the bloody death of Jesus. That's how. Much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. <laughs> I, hope you're, I hope you're getting this. The blood delivers us from danger. The blood of Christ makes atonement. Um, and of course, what is, what is atonement? It's reconciling um, an ancient friendship that was broken because of sin. God created mankind uh, in a loving relationship. Sin entered by the hand of Adam and Eve, hands of Adam and Eve, and this, this friendship was broken. And so Jesus came, the second person of the Godhead, became one of us, lived a perfect life that we could not, that we're incapable of, to die the death that we deserve through his blood so that we could be reconciled to our God. The ancient friendship's been restored as God intended. Christ brings these two warring parties back together. God was completely satisfied with the death of Jesus to accomplish this. So how does this reconciliation take place? Back to Isaiah 53, verse five. This will be the second time you've heard this this morning. But he who, Christ, he was pierced for our transgressions. That's when this, the spear went into his chest. He was pierced for our transgressions, spilt out the last ounce of blood that was there. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. So Jesus' blood, his, his sinless blood, was the price required by God for our sin. Jesus' merit, in other words, Listen closely, bankers. Jesus' merit was credited to our account. If, in fact, the only thing that pleases God is perfection, we have nothing to offer. But Christ's perfection, that infinite perfection, infinitely was passed on to your account and mine. So now our standing is flush. Now God sees us through the lens of Jesus' perfection. This reconciles us, this reunites us to our heavenly friend. So what if I sin again? After all this work that Christ did on Calvary, what if I sin again? You mean like in five minutes? Yeah, like in five hours, in five days. This ongoing struggle with sin, what happens then? Well, listen to what Hebrews does with this. Chapter 9, verse 12. He, that is Christ Jesus, entered once for all time. That's what that means, once for all, into the holy places for all time. Let's think about that concept of all time. Everything past, everything currently, present, and everything future. Once for all time, he entered into holy places, the heavenly holy places, the presence of God the Father, not by means of blood of goats and calves like used to happen in the Old Testament typical system, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's flowing ever, forever, only over your blood, I mean over your sins, his blood. So think of it with me. In two weeks, when you sin egregiously, the sun, Hebrews tells us, is in heaven 
interceding for you before the Father with what? His own blood. I paid for that. That's how he intercedes before the Father, before the judge of the universe. It's been paid for. Next we see in the antitype that Jesus' blood purifies his people. Friends, there's nothing left to do except for you to run to Jesus <laughs> for his free, complete, specific, and wonderful redemption. But now let's look at how Jesus' blood purifies his people. The Old Testament, remember how to purify leprosy? Blood. How do we purify our issues? Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 gives us a hint. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did he do that? By a bloody death on Calvary. That he might, listen, his blood, after giving himself up for us, his blood sanctifies us, purifies us, cleans us. This is why we sing about the blood of Christ, because it delivers us from danger. It delivers us comprehensively, and it purifies us completely. Revelation 1, 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of king of kings, that one, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You are, your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You are growing in purity by the blood of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. Once Jesus' blood was shed for us on Calvary, the Holy Spirit was free to pour himself into his people the ones chosen before the foundation of the world that we just heard about from Ephesians and Acts and the others, when the Holy Spirit is poured into the life of a believer and begins to apply the work of, of Jesus Christ on Calvary to our lives, guess what happens? We grow in godliness. We begin to be sanctified. We begin to be purified. We become more and more like Jesus, i.e. Romans 8, 29 and 30. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. How? Through his blood. That's how. The application of his blood to your life. So, this growth in godliness is called holiness in scripture, right? And what does holiness tell us? Holiness tells us that it is the image and glory of God. That's what God is. Be holy as your heavenly father is holy. It's, it's what he is. He's holy. Secondly, holiness is the evidence of God's sanctifying work in his people. If you're not growing in godliness, you're not becoming more holy, you're not his people. Thirdly, holiness distinguishes genuine believers from the world. This is how we can tell each other apart in the world. You shall know a tree by its fruit, Jesus said. He was talking about holiness. So it's not okay to continue calling yourself a Christian and living the life before you knew Christ. It's not okay. In fact, it proves you haven't received Christ, <laughs> if that's your desire. So did, did Jesus die to purify us from our sin, to make us holy? Yes, he did. Then Christian, let me ask you a simple question. Are you becoming more holy? 
Yes or no? Are you more holy today than you were a year ago? Six months ago? Are, are you struggling less with that particular sin? That prevailing sin? Are you growing in godliness? Are you being more loving to your neighbor? More kind to your spouse? More gentle with your children? Do your neighbors like you more today than they did when you first moved in? And if Jesus had to die, friends, to make our purity actually happen, think about how deep the pollution of sin runs in us. He actually had to die the death he did so that we would be purified. Nothing else would work. And then finally, Jesus' blood confirms the new covenant. We had the old covenant, Moses on Sinai, right? Ten Commandments. And when you break them, kill a bunch of animals. That was the old covenant. New covenant is a little different than that. But it's the antitype of what was already spoken of back in Exodus 24.8 that I read you earlier. Jesus in Matthew 26.28 says this, For this is my blood of the covenant. You're going to hear it again when I serve you the Lord's Supper. This is the covenant or the new covenant in my blood. So, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant is the last covenant. It's the last will and testament of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Jesus' death confirms that covenant with all the attendant benefits. Do you know what benefits come with the new covenant? And by the way, if you're in Christ, you receive these. Do you know what benefits are promised to us who are in Christ? Let me give you a few. Forgiveness of sin. Pretty good. I like that benefit. Reconciliation with our God and Creator. Friendship reestablished. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's daily assistance to grow in grace. It's a good blessing, isn't it? Uh, adoption into a family, an eternal family, a spiritual family, family of God. How about this one, eternal life, eternal, glorious, joyful life. So what do you think about these things, Christian? What's this basement look like to you? These things were, you've read about all these things in Mark 14, 15, and 16. You've read about them from John 12 to John 21. How many times have you read these things? This is, what, this is what's in the basement. This amazing God with this amazing plan of redemption. You know, we, I know that there are weary saints in every crowd, you know, weary with their jobs, weary with their health, weary with their marriage, weary with numerous things. And we, we must take encouragement from these things found in the basement. We, we have a, a loving God who has orchestrated the events of our lives to bring us to himself, to sanctify us, to bring us to glory one day. The Apostle Paul was not unaware of, of suffering um, and the knowledge that many that he wrote to were suffering also. And in 2 Corinthians, he wrote, 
this to that church who had its share of suffering. So we do not lose heart, verses 16 and 17 say of 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this, suffering saint. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we don't lose heart. And you say, well, Paul doesn't know my circumstances. He doesn't know how bad I suffer. And for you to say that, you'd have to, under, you'd have to not know how bad he suffered. <laughs> I think Paul's suffering outmatched anybody in the room. And so he calls it light and momentary affliction. Friends, we can move to tomorrow with good hope, can't we? We have a great Savior who's provided us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. We're going to serve you, the elders and myself, we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper here. And guess what the elements are that we're going to serve you? This little cup of juice and little wafer of bread. They are types. They're pictures of all that Christ has done to secure your salvation, to secure your forgiveness of sin, to secure your place in heaven one day, are pictured in those elements. The bread and the juice. And so as you come this morning and are served, I want you to remember there is a direct connection between what you're putting in your mouth and Mark 14, 15, and 16. There's a direct connection between all that these things picture and Isaiah 53, who said, although he went through extreme anguish, he will see and be satisfied. His plan works. He saves people, people who need encouragement from time to time. And the Lord's Supper is intended by God, applied by the Holy Spirit, for you who need encouragement. And for you who think you don't, you better especially need to get up here. All right? But we have an opportunity this morning to, to together receive the blessing of God through the Lord's Supper of the, the juice and bread. That picture of the broken body and spilt blood of our Savior. That blood that delivers us from danger. That atones for our sin. That makes heaven certain. So if you know Jesus, come forward when we offer it. Come down the middle aisle and we'll serve you these things and it'll be a spiritual encouragement, a nourishment to your soul. If you don't know Jesus, you can right now, where you sit, acknowledge your sin, confess it to him, ask for his forgiveness, and then cut in line and come forward. We allow people to cut in line here at the, during the Lord's Supper service. So do that and be blessed. Elders, if you'll come after I read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll pray for the elements. So listen as I read these amazing words that will remind you of what I've just preached. 1 Corinthians 11, 
starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant with the sacrifice of animals, but the new covenant that's in my eternally perfect blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It'll remind you of all that I've done for you. So Christian friend, come. Let me thank God for this. Father in heaven, we, our hearts are full of thanksgiving and joy from the truths of Mark 14, 15, and 16, which reveal the depth of your love for your people that expose us to your nature, your divine nature. It confirms the things that we read of in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel in Genesis through Deuteronomy, through all the prophets and Psalms, all the wisdom literature, over and over again, we're reminded of your loving plan for us who will simply embrace your son, who will simply push the button. Lord Jesus, come now, minister to us through your Holy Spirit in these elements, encourage our hearts and remind us of your goodness. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Come, Christian friend.